Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome again to Just Sustainability, curious conversations about sustainability, equity, and social justice. this episode, I'll be sharing the first part of a chat that I had with Dr. Fiola Jacobs, who's an assistant professor of urban and regional planning in the Hubert H. Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Fiola and I had a wonderful and wide-ranging conversation about a host of topics. We talked about how she, as a child, became interested in sustainability and equity after witnessing firsthand how natural disasters can have distinctly different impacts for different communities. She also told me about how she's worked to try to address oppression in the treatment of mental health, and we considered how the social determinants of health and wellness, as well as fair access to decision and policy making, are related to sustainability. But before we get to all that, I should let Fiola introduce herself. So I am Fiola Jacob. So I am a Black feminist, a teacher, a lifelong learner, an urban planning researcher, and a Caribbean woman who loves small islands and big cities. Um, I'm really in love with Black communities and Black people. I spend a lot of time thinking about how historic and current systems of oppression and privilege shape our lives, our choices. And I spend a lot of time thinking about social justice, about climate change, and particularly about hurricanes. So I think those are the overarching things. On top of that, I'm an assistant professor at, at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. At the beginning of our interview, I asked Fiola about what led her to pursue a career centered on sustainability and equity. Her answer, I think, highlights how sustainability and equity can be deeply personal work and how experiences when we're young can have a huge impact on the course of our lives. Here's what she said. I grew up in the Caribbean, so I had a lot of exposure to hurricanes and a lot of natural disasters. So when I was in primary school, a volcano on a neighboring island called Montserrat um, erupted and continued to erupt throughout, on and off throughout primary school. So we had a lot of people from Montserrat, Montserratians, move from Montserrat to St. Kitts, where I'm from. Um, and went to school with a lot of these people whose lives were really, really so heavily impacted, really upended by the, by the volcano. Um, and my life continued to be upended by hurricanes, so particularly Hurricane George, I might get the year wrong, I think 98, I'll have to double check that. Um, but um, Hurricane George, when that hit, St. Kitts, it really completely changed the way that we attended school. So we had to attend school in shift systems because the roof had blown off of our building and it was no could no longer accommodate all of us at the same time. So some of us went to school starting at about seven o'clock in the morning and the others went in the afternoon shift. And it really showed me how from a young age, how our lives were really shaped by the environments that we were living in. After telling me about her childhood in the Caribbean, the impact that natural disasters had in her view of the world, Fiola told me a little bit about her experience in graduate school. One thing that stuck out to me was her description of a moment when she had a sort of epiphany and recognized how environment and equity were related. 
after finishing my undergraduate and working for a few years, I decided to go back to graduate school and I started a graduate program in urban planning at the University of North Carolina and I sat in the class. Um, my first elective of that um, graduate school experience was a class called Planning for Climate Change and Disaster. And I sat in the class and was hearing my professor talk about all these very interconnected issues. And it was like the literal proverbial aha moment. There was a light bulb that went off and it really felt like a place where I could bring my entire self to. It had everything that I cared about. It was about it was about small island developing states. It was about it was about equity. It was about social justice. It was about health in this very broad way. It was about the built environment. It was about equity and all of these. Like I tell people, as much as I hesitate to talk about hurricanes or disasters as a moment of opportunity, um, I do really think about them as these moments where everything is laid bare, like all the inequities, all the injustices in our societies, like the layers are stripped back and we are just seeing these stark inequities in how communities experience them. And not only that, but we also have these moments to imagine something different for ourselves and our communities moving forward. And that is why, everything for me became about disasters and environmental justice. Fayolo telling me about how she first started thinking about the relationship between the environment and equity prompted me to ask her about how she defines sustainability. This led us to a couple conversations, one about the links between environment and wellness, and another about how, if we're concerned about wellness, we should be concerned about climate change and all the other ways that humans have harmed the environment. Here are those conversations. I don't know where I had read this definition, but I... Someone said something along the lines of sustainability is about us producing, consuming, and enjoying resources in ways that don't infringe upon the next generation's ability to produce, consume, and enjoy. And I really like thinking about it in that way because then sustainability becomes about so much, right? Like it becomes about food, it becomes about economics, it becomes about the environment, it becomes about these systems that um, produce, that shape the way that we produce, consume, and enjoy. And I really like thinking about sustainability in that way. And of course, sustainability goes beyond the environmental sustainability. I mean, we talk about social, economic, and human sustainability, but environmental sustainability as it works with social sustainability is really where my heart lies. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the details, but I think you did a project that had to do with mental health, right? Yes. So I used to run work- anti-oppression workshops on mental health and wellness as they connect with race, racism, and migration. Mm-hmm. And so with the way you think about sustainability in terms of like social sustainability and economic sustainability, as well as environmental sustainability and thinking about factors that mediate our ability to produce and consume uh, uh, when it comes to resources. Could you say a little bit about like how you think about like the relationship between wellness and health and sustainability? I, I guess maybe I just would like to, to riff on that a bit and see what you have to say. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing that comes immediately to mind is a lot. Well, when I was doing my PhD at Texas A&M, there was a very, there was a, there was a group of researchers um, who weren't necessarily in the same lab as me, but who were around, who did a lot of studies on hospitals and natural environments. So they looked at therapeutic landscapes, particularly um, gardens um, in hospitals and how those helped, um, how those impacted people's wellness. And all of the studies being done um, out of fields like landscape architecture and related disciplines um, from the 90s until now have really shown for decades that nature has a positive effect on health outcomes. Like it has a positive effect on the patients in the hospital if they have a room with a window even, and even more so if they're able to go outside into gardens and spend time into na in nature. So I think that is one of the most obvious connections to health and wellness, the fact that really spending time in nature and having an environment, um, uh, having a well, well-maintained and maintained, I mean, I don't mean that the garden has to be perfectly pruned or anything like that. I mean, just in terms of sustainability, having a good natural environment around you really impacts the ways that you can move through the world. It impacts your mental health as well as your physical health. The gardens are therapeutic for people, you know, Playing yeah. in the dirt, growing things, making, um, watching things grow, um, watching nature, etc. But it also has, and it also has really um, effects on what food you have access to. For a lot of people, for some people, community gardens are the only food, the only healthy vegetables and fruits that they will have ac regular access to and can regularly afford. You know, mm -hmm. and so one of my friends. Um, one uh, he's in Houston right now and he's in walking distance of what was a community garden that was really tended to by students and community members and since COVID it's become overrun with weeds and all these kinds of things and I just wonder where are people getting their food now if that was one of the sources um, and so when we think about cl changing climate sea level rise the salination levels of soil they're really going to limit or at least change what can be grown or when we think about unsustainable deforestation projects like we're really really um destroying natural habitats and our relationship to the natural environment and when we think it in light of those studies that say humans need nature these things climate change it's really going to have a terrible effect on our mental health and wellness which will undoubtedly impact our physical health too and other types of health also after speaking about how important interaction with nature is for human wellness and her concerns arising from the impacts of COVID, climate change, and unsustainable management practices, Fayola and I started talking about the social determinants of health. This led to a conversation about access and about how the exclusion of marginalized communities can result in bad decision and policymaking, particularly when it comes to sustainable development. Here's that discussion. The common framework through which people understand those things um, in public health at least tend to be the social determinants of health and really thinking through the ways in which race, or rather to be more accurate, racism 
and classism and sexism and ableism and all of these things really impact our access to health and wellness and to things that can help us continue to build them. Mm-hmm. How do you like thinking about the social determinants of health uh, tie into your work, right? So like, right, how does that tie together like the sustainability and like equity concerns that uh, you think about? Well, I just think, I mean, I think a lot about the social determinants of, of health in regard to access. Um, so the things that limit our access to health and wellness and to resources in general. And I mean, when I, especially thinking about um, sustainability with respect to equity and social justice, which are, you know, the social determinants of health are very much related to uh in my definition of sustainability, one of the things I mention is consumption, right? Um, and one of the things I always think about is we're really not consuming resources equitably across the globe or even within communities. So we have some communities who are really producing, some countries especially who are producing carbon emissions at significantly higher rates than others, particularly developed countries like the US and major emerging economy nations. Um, And then there are lots of intra-country variations too. And we see a lot of shame impacting, um, a lot of things impacting poor people's access to health and wellness and to sustainability. While poor people are often criticized and guilted, whether intentionally or not, for not buying fair trade or not buying organic or not recycling, you know? But when we look at the statistics around um, who's consuming, the reality is poor people are not consuming nearly at the rates that rich people do. So I remember reading um, maybe a month or so ago, reading an article um, and it was on an Oxfam report and it was saying that the world's richest people, the world's richest 1% of people emitted about twice as much carbon dioxide as the world's poorest 50%. Mm. So we're talking about the top 1% producing twice the carbon dioxide as 50% of the world. And so it, it really strikes me, especially being from the Caribbean, where most nations and the region on the whole is not contributing as much to those emissions. Um, And even the emissions that are being produced in the Caribbean a lot of times um, are being produced by the the tourism industry, which is usually developed nation, people from developed nations traveling to the Caribbean. you're really the people who will feel the brunt of this unsustainable consumption, especially in the form of climate change impacts, are poor people in small Mm -hmm. island developing states and other coastal regions. And so you see, um, and it's even (laughs) one of the starkest things to me is thinking about the ways that the, the developed world ships garbage, literal garbage to developing countries because they have nowhere to put it or they don't want to put it in their communities. And so we are allowing people, we are forced or are allowing people to pay us to take garbage and to store garbage um, that of things that we haven't 
consume. And so we see major inequities there and we see major issues for environmental sustainability and how they intersect with major social justice issues too. It's good that those are access issues in a broad sense of ways, right? There's access to resources, but there's also access to decision-making, right? Like I think something you said, um, I'd like to get you to explore more, right? Because you said that folks are forcing, right? Like folks from developed countries are forcing folks from like lower and middle income countries to accept literal garbage. Um, and that strikes me as right, not uh, folks from the lower income countries and middle income countries not actually having access to making those decisions, right? Like it's not consent based, it's, it's coerced. And so I'd like to hear more about what do you think about access when you talked about people being coerced, I always think of, there's this book, I have forgotten the name of it. It was written by Aristide, who was once um, head of Haiti and he was exiled. Um, but he wrote a book and I remember him talking about the IMF coming, I think it was the IMF, it might've been the World Bank officials um, coming to Haiti and in Haiti at the time, there were a lot, like lots of people had Creole pigs. And Creole pigs were these pigs that were really, really low maintenance pigs that a lot of poor people had. And so when they didn't require much, they scraps from the tables, et cetera. Um, and when things became especially hard for a family, then they could slaughter the pig and have meat or sell some of the meat to get income, etc. Um, and so they were a very important part of Haiti's informal economy. And the um, whatever power it was the IMF or the World Bank, I would have to double check, came and they said that these Creole pigs were disease carriers. So they were worried about um, these whatever diseases they were worried about these pigs having, they were worried about the diseases being traveling to other countries. And so they were going to give this loan or grant to um, Haiti if they would basically slaughter all of those Creole pigs and they would also give them these new pigs, um, which were supposed to be immune to whatever pests that they were worried about mm -hmm. and so after so you know um they needed the money so they were like okay cool and they also got these pigs um and they started whatever the term for in creole for prince was that's what they started calling the pigs because the pigs were so high maintenance they had to be helped but had a special kind of food. They were very, very sensitive. They did not survive well in Haiti. And so the pigs were eventually dying and not in a way that people could consume the meat. So it was just a complete strong arming this country into taking on, into getting rid of what was one resource for them and completely strong arming them into taking this resource that was not suitable for the country at all. And I always think about that story because yes, the Haitian officials technically would have the right to say no, right? Like you technically have the right to say no and you can tell people that you're not going to kill your Creole pigs. 
you could technically tell the people no and not take the money. Um, but really, when you have countries and people, communities living under the brunt of oppression for so long, and then also being told, I mean, you see how there's so much discrimination that Haitians face when they move to the US, like so much stigma around people being dirty and poor and all of these things. And so when we have all of those ideas in our heads about ourselves or about other people, then what are we to do when everybody says progress looks a certain way? Mm-hmm. Um, that progress looks like having these pigs and not the dirty pigs that um, not the dirty pigs that the country is accustomed to. Um, wouldn't you want access to the progress? Yeah. And so it's just it's like being between a rock and a hard place sometimes with some of the things that countries have to do, that communities have to do to survive and to keep a sense of self, etc. Goes with that kind of long pattern of downplaying indigenous knowledges and indigenous mm-hmm. uh, adaptations to the their local context, right? You see this because I mean, there's there's those cases all over the place, right? Like there's changing of rice agriculture in like South Asia and the Pacific Islands. There's mm-hmm. uh, shifting from uh, local diets to the the Western standard diet. It's all always has yeah. these terrible effects on the on the communities, right? You you see people adopt sort of Western ways of doing things, and then everybody gets diabetes. Right. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you, one of the most obvious places we've seen it recently is with the wildfires in California, right? Mm-hmm. So the wildfires raging across the western U.S. right now, um, you know, all of a sudden fire officials are like, oh, maybe we should do controlled burns and controlled burns <laughs> for what indigenous tribes were doing forever and were forced to stop with colonization and it's like, like, duh, how surprising is it that the people who were stewards of the lands for how long know how to deal with the lands? And now all of a sudden you're like, oh, um, yeah. I'm sorry that we were racist and genocidal before when y'all knew the right way to do things and we just weren't listening. Yeah, it, it happens again and again. I mean, I think I think that that sort of trend of failure to acknowledge indigenous knowledges and sort of the bad outcomes that comes with it is another one of those reasons why we really need to be attentive to to equity and attentive to access. It's not just for the folks that are getting access. It's useful for all mm-hmm. of us to have like a, a more robust conversation about the way to uh, steward the world we have. Mm-hmm. There's Definitely. No... Yeah. I've seen racism hurts white people too. Sexism hurts all genders. Like all of these things, all of these things on me deny people full access to our world and to the world which they have been living in like we all suffer i think we've reached a good spot to end this episode at this point we've learned a little bit about fiola jacobs and the pathway she's taken in her work on sustainability and equity hope that listening to fiola has helped you think about the relationships between environment wellness and equity thinking about those connections will help set us up for our next episode in that episode, we'll listen to the remainder of the conversation that I had with Fiola, and we'll learn a little bit about how she approaches making positive change through her work as a teacher and as a researcher, and how she's worked to challenge the conventions of higher ed as a way to make it more inclusive, equitable, and a welcoming space. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. 
If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.